0: Okay. (laughs) For the rest of us this morning, let's go ahead and turn in our Bible to James chapter 3. We're continuing our series together. James wrote this epistle to churches, to Jewish believers who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire and who found themselves together worshiping in houses. In catacombs, in cemeteries, wherever they could, they were coming together to worship. And the subtitle of this today is The Church Prattles. Prattle is a very fun, older word. Nobody really uses it anymore. It's another word, a synonym for talking or chatter, sometimes gibberish. But it's also for gossip, for slander. Kind of fitting for the church these days. It also keeps us on that alliteration track we've been on since the very first in this series. Together, the church perseveres, purifies, purposes, partial, produces, and now prattles. Keeping track, we're about halfway through the sermon. Uh, the sermon series. How we talk in the church and about the church really matters. How we talk matters. And I'll dive into that because some of you are saying, well, Pastor Jeff, that doesn't sound like you, but hold on to your seats this morning. We're going to go ahead and read in verse 1, if you will follow along. Do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment? For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the entire body as well. Now, if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot wills. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our existence and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beasts and birds of reptiles or creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a fountain pour forth from the same opening fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh? Father God, this morning... I pray this be a cleansing conviction that your word hit us and hit us hard. It is not the word of Jeff. It is not the word of faith assembly of God. It is the very breath, the very word of God Almighty himself. May you speak to us as we seek to understand your word today. May we apply this to our life as we go forward. In Jesus' name. Amen. When we read this, it's kind of a sombering text. This ought to smack us pretty hard. In fact, there are points in it that the early audience, when they heard this, they no doubt would have sat and wept. Our words will take us where our hearts truly want to go. That's the one thing to take away from this passage really. Our hearts will take us where our hearts truly want to go. What do I mean by that? Well, to begin with this portion of the text, James tells us first and foremost to think twice before wanting to become or becoming teachers. He's going to address our self-control when it comes to our speech. Our words and the way we use them do matter, not in the magic spell say the right words, and God will give you what you want sort of way. That's nonsense. That's witchcraft. Not in the we're little gods, and so if you just have enough faith, God will do this for you sort of way. That does not happen. Period. Full stop. Anybody tells you otherwise, they are deceiving. And they are undermining the preaching of this church, by the way. But there are consequences to what we say, and there are consequences to how we say it. I pointed this out a few weeks ago, and I believe that this is probably what was in the back of James's mind as he was writing this text, Proverbs 18:21, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. And we saw at that time that if we look at the context of that, James is not saying just because you say have life, that's going to create life. What he's saying is there are consequences to what we say, how we say it, and we have the, the ability to encourage, to build up, and we also have the ability to tear down and destroy the human spirit. This past week, I was blessed, overwhelmingly blessed to meet either in person or on the phone with five different pastors. It doesn't happen very often. Pastor Mike will tell you that many times ministry is very alone. And last week after service, I felt very alone. And God reminded me, there are brothers in arms, and I was very encouraged by their words as they built me up. And I didn't ask for it. Not from them, I prayed for it. And God still provides. How we talk to one another can build up or tear down so easily. There are consequences. Our words have the power to influence. Our words have the power to inflame and to inspire. This is what James is talking about in our text today. We know also, if you have studied Scripture at all in your life, that the words in your Mouth are really inspired by what's in your heart, and therefore our words will take us where our heart truly wants to go. So, what do I mean by all that? Well, we're going to spend the next three points of the sermon unpacking all of that. The first thing we see is that our words influence. Now, full disclosure this morning, you're going to look at your watch when I get to point number three and go, Oh boy. We've been here a while, yes, but I promise point three will fly really quick, okay? Uh, We're going to spend a little bit of time on verses one through six. Uh, We definitely want to cover them exclusively. Uh, It's better than doing two sermons out of one, okay? Uh, But we read again in verses one and two. Do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the entire body as well. He begins with, in English, two words, do not. Some translations make this sound as though it's a a suggestion. Brothers, you shouldn't want to do this. No, it is a command. Do not. Don't do this. You may want to, you may feel like it's a good idea. Don't, don't do it. He goes on, do not, many of you, the word for many is poloi in Greek. It means a great number, a multitude. One problem we have in the church today is we have a lot of people who wear the title pastor, who wear the title teacher, and don't pastor or teach anything. They just want the power that comes with the position. They want the R-E-V for reverend attached to their their name for some reason, because they think it's something good. Let me tell you, it is not. There is a weight that comes with the pastor position. There is a weight that comes with standing in the pulpit. Many people see the microphone and they see the influence and they say, I want that. No, you don't. No, you do not. Unless God has called you, you definitely don't. And James says, don't Many of you become. That word is Genesthe in Greek and it means to assume the position or take the place of. So basically right out of the gate what James is telling us is do not try to take this role for yourself. Don't do that. Don't assume that you are in this position. Which position is he referring to? That of teacher. Teacher, if you will recall, is one of the gifts, one of the Positions, sorry, the offices that Paul said is given by God to the church. He said he himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. In the Greek, in Paul's writing, pastor and teacher is one and the same. It would better be understood as pastor hyphen teachers, perhaps. James understands this that these four positions are for the church, for the foundation and then for the building up. And I'll show you what I mean by that. He goes on to say, knowing that we, he lumps himself in with teachers. But James was not exclusively a teacher. He was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. So we understand the early church knew pastor and teacher was pastor slash teacher. Maybe be the way to understand that. We look closer at that, the word didaskale or didaskaloi in this sense, that's the same word they used for Jesus, who was their teacher, their pastor. It means he was their instructor. He didn't just teach them, he led them as their shepherd. But I want you to also notice in Galatians 4, God gave that position to the churches, to the churches. God did not give your pastor a church. God gave the church a pastor. Remember what James said back in chapter 1. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And I don't say that to say your pastor is good. I'm not even mediocre some days. I don't say that to say your pastor is perfect. Look at my messy office sometime. You'll find that's not true. But pastors and teachers, James is quite clear, they are a gift to the church, and they are going to be judged more harshly on their end, while the church is judged for how they treat their pastors. Hebrews 13 tells us to obey our leaders, that it be a joy for them, and many pastors would love if it just stopped right there, but it also goes on to say, for they will be Judged. Now as I said, I'm going to spend a little more time on, on verses one and two. Pastors and teachers, the only way I can really describe it is we carry a weight, a burden for the church that Paul describes that many of you don't understand and will never be able to relate to. One of the greatest problem causers in a church, and this is something I'm going to, to cover quite a bit right now, is Something I've seen my entire life from the time I was four years old to even now. One of the greatest problem causers in so many churches are men and women who believe they were called to preach, called to pastor in some capacity, but never answered the call. Now, for some reason, either due to their own circumstances, due to things beyond their own control, or the simple fact they weren't ever called but were enamored with the power of the position, whatever that is, and some of them believe they missed their call, these men and women cause more problems within the church than anyone else. I have a close family member who watches our videos sometimes, so I won't name names and Knowing this family member, he'll think I'm talking about somebody else anyway. But he believes he was called to ministry at a young age. In fact, every time in the last few years, I've had to go home to Illinois to preach two different sermons. And each time, this family member's pulled me aside and said, Oh, I think you're fulfilling my calling. It doesn't work that way. This relative never had the desire to be diligent, as Paul says, to present himself as one approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. But that doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't called. But I can say with 100% clear conscience he was not. And it's not because he doesn't like to study Scripture. Liking to study Scripture is not a sign necessarily of the call, believe it or not. But I'll tell you how you can tell if somebody is called, and this is something that we need to learn as a church. As it is with most people who believe they were called and are not, he's only ever been miserable in the churches he's attended, and he has made life miserable for every pastor whose authority he's ever set under. That's how I know he wasn't called. But hear me out before you think I'm picking on my relative. A man who is called may not have the desire to study. He may even have little desire to understand the word of God. Notice that Paul, in that letter to Timothy, directs him to do this. He commands him to do this. He doesn't commend him for already doing it. A passion for the word of God is what every Christian should have at some point. We should develop that It's not a marker of someone who's necessarily called to pastor or preach, but it is a marker of a maturing, developing Christian. It's a good thing, but it doesn't make or break the call of God. We're all commanded to do it. We're not necessarily commanded to like it, but I think that we will the more we get into it. And with that said, a passion to study and know, at some point, should begin to to burn within the preacher. A passion to preach without a passion to study is really a passion to perform. And like I said, we have way too many performers in the pulpit today. But not initially having that passion does not negate the call. We can learn that passion and develop it. Charles Spurgeon gave us the best thermometer, you might say, for testing whether or not someone is called. And he was called by history the Prince of Preachers, so I think he knows something about it started preaching when he was 17 and realized quickly he was out of his depth. So he began a Bible college, began to teach others. And this is how he would say you teach. And he had scripture after a life of study to support each one. Five different things. The first is compulsion. Does he have a desire? Does she have a desire to preach? They can't help but preach. Their mind is always drifting to how to explain the things of God. John the Baptist had this. Jeremiah had the fire shut up inside his bones. There's competency. Do they take preaching seriously? Are they willing to study? Are they willing to be taught? Do they have the patience to prepare? Acts chapter 6 gives us an example of the apostles wanting to study and making sure they had time to dedicate towards study and prayer. Are there conversions? The first time Peter preaches in the book of Acts, post resurrection, 3,000 people come to accept Christ, come to Christ. That does not mean that every pastor, every altar call, there should be thousands and hundreds of people, or even dozens, or even one person coming and praying the sinner's prayer. But are the people who hear the message coming into a richer, developed, maturing relationship with Jesus Christ? Is that happening? That's another sign to know if a person's called. And there's confirmation. Is your calling confirmed by the church, by your family, by those closest to you? Paul saw upon young Timothy a call, and so he laid his hands upon him and anointed him for ministry. And that's the first four things. But there's a fifth thing, and that's the one that breaks us. That's the one that excludes so many from the ministry. There are many who have those first four things. There are plenty who want to preach. They love scripture. They believe that the pulpit is one of the most sacred things in the church. They love to lead people to Jesus, but the fifth thing is the litmus test. And it will make or break any ministry, and that is simply, are they consecrated? Where is their integrity are they Christ like? How do they treat the authority that they are under now? Please do not go and try to convince people that you're called to some sort of ministry if you undermine your pastor, if you can't pray for your board, if you refuse to take direction within your own church. Any man or woman who thinks they should preach or teach but cannot sit under the authority that God has placed over them and respect that and learn from it, has no business being an authority themselves. None. Now, if the pastor's abusive, absolutely. If he's a tyrant, sure. Find another church. Don't try and build your own flock out of somebody else's. But someone who believes they are called and cannot respect the authority over them, such men and women, when they are given the position of ministry, and mark my words, at some point they will find their way to it. They will manipulate, they will work, and they will persist until they get it. And in that position they will be more miserable than they've ever been in their entire life. They cannot stand in a pulpit with a good conscience, never having submitted to the pulpit God put before them before. A great example of this within scripture is the story of Absalom. Absalom, the kingdom was not yet going to go to Solomon, but Absalom saw the power that his father had, saw the throne that his father set on, and he said, I want that. And so what did Absalom do? He tries to usurp the authority that was not his to take. He got the people on his side. He would hover around the gate. And when people would come to see the king, he would be their friend. And every chance he got, little digs, little cuts, he would put David down. See, your claims are good and right, he'd say, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. That's 2 Samuel 15, 3. Today such a person would say things like, "Well, I'm the only one who has the pastor's ear on this. I'm the only one who knows how to fix this church. I'm the only one. If you put me in that boardroom, by golly, I'd line them out." Second Samuel 15:4. Moreover, Absalom would say, "Oh, that one would appoint me judge in this land. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice." Do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing we will receive a stricter judgment. I've said this recently, I'll say it again. When I get to heaven, God's not going to come up to me and say, Oh, Jeff, I'm so glad you're here. Guys, angels, all you dead people who made it here first, come and meet the guy with perfect theology. This is the dude I was telling you about. He was the best preacher in North Dakota. Man, I love listening to him. Every Sunday, I would just sit while he'd preach. I don't want to hear any of that. All I want to hear is a well done, good and faithful servant. You understand that my place in this church is to hear the word of God, take the word of God, and share it with you so that you hear the word of God and take the word of God and share it with others. I don't want to be some stuffy professor at the college an hour away. I don't ever want that. That's not a commentary on TBC. I just don't want that job. I don't ever want to be a district official in North Dakota. I sat down with Kevin Zahn within a month of becoming a pastor, and he was so nervous. I'll never forget the conversation, because I got him to try sushi, and he almost threw up. Kevin said at one point, it's such a relief to talk to you like this. We're just talking about your church. Yeah, that's all I wanted. I just want to be the best pastor for Lisbon that I can be. And he said, you know, I sat down with a pastor just a few weeks ago and the first thing he said, he was a new pastor just like I was at the time and the first words out of his mouth was, so how do I become a presbyter like you? He said, it's so refreshing that you just want to pastor your church. Guys, it's all I've ever wanted. And only if I'm faithful in that will I hear, well done. But that goes for all of us. More for the pastor. Nobody gets a trophy when they get to heaven for being right. But those of you who want to preach and teach, be warned because Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. Church, I do not care for trophies, but I fear the millstone. The problem is, not many do. And so they want to become teachers. They want to become preachers. They want to become pastors. And they may even be good. They may even be gifted. They're probably better orators than I am. That does not mean anything because if they are not called, the wheels will come off and the millstone waits. James says, Because we all stumble in many ways all of us do. And James isn't just speaking about pastors and teachers now. Now he's using the general we. All of us. Everyone stumbles. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone sins. And this might blow your mind but even the pastor sins. The word for stumble here in the Greek, it means to miss a step or even to trip. But it's used as a metaphor in the New Testament for sin. It's not purposely falling, it's not purposely sinning or practicing sin, but it's what happens to all of us nonetheless. We all make mistakes, we all sin. And James says, but hey, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, in other words, if this guy can control everything he says, every word is controlled and clear, that person is a perfect man, but such a man aside from Christ himself, does not exist. That's why the proverb says, even an ignorant fool, when he keeps silent, he is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered understanding. If a person can bridle their tongue, can control their mouth, they're perfect. How can James say this? Because he knows the words of Jesus. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Those defile the man see like all of our actions our speech reflects who we really are who we are on the inside what we do what we say it doesn't just reflect our love for God and for others but it reflects what's on the inside those who teach those who preach we're all judged but that group is judged judged all the more harshly why because their words have greater influence As someone I once heard said, the man with the microphone always wins. You ever watch comedians when hecklers decide to go a little crazy with them? Who wins that argument? The comedian. Every time. And therefore, there's a weight that comes with that. Verses 3 and 4 read, now, if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot wills. Now, if we, and here James again, he's speaking overall. we. He's not just speaking about himself. He's not just talking about the leaders of the church. If we put bits into the horses' mouths, now you all know I'm not a horse guy. Okay, understatement of the year in this church, I think. When I was younger, I did ride horses. My mom's family owned horses and, and some cattle. We did horseback rides when I was young. In fact, when I was in youth group, we would do horseback rides on a on a man's ranch. The guy attended our church. His name was Chubb Scott. Chubb was one of my Sunday school teachers. Great guy. Just an older man in the church who was a man's man, the kind of guy you wanted to latch on to, learn from. He was great. And he taught me a few things about horses. He didn't teach me about the bit. The bit is probably one of the more important things, though. It goes in the mouth, and the reins are connected to that, right? And so when you pull one way, if the horse is trained, and those of you who ride horses, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you pull on the horse this way, he's going to go this way, right? Pretty elementary. It's like a bicycle with legs, A horse does not do this naturally because you're putting something into his mouth that he does not want there. But from that little piece of metal, James says, they will obey us. From that little piece of metal, we direct their entire body as well. If you go to ride a horse and you don't pull on the reins and you don't direct it, what's going to happen? horse is going to go where he wants to go, right? Now I have an illustration for this and I, I want you to understand that I called this friend of mine and made sure that I could share this story. That's how embarrassing it is. So if you get a laugh out of it, he's okay with that. Um, Thomas Hesterly was my best friend from first grade. He's still one of my closest friends. He lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We haven't seen each other in years. We text almost every day. Great childhood friend of mine. And Thomas went to the Church of God and I went to the Assemblies of God Church. We were both Pentecostal and too weirded out by our churches to invite each other to actual services. But we would do youth rallies, and we would do fun events, and Thomas came with me one time to a trail ride at Chubb Scott's Ranch, and I will never forget it. I got on the horse, because that's what I knew how to do, and I began to ride close to Chubb at the first of the the very front of the trail ride, and Chubb and I are talking and having a good time. We'd, we'd coon hunted together with my dad, so we had a lot to talk about, and we were probably about three, four hundred yards away from the starting point. I began to look around for my friend. Where's Thomas? Oh, he's at the back. So I turn around, I pull on the reins, and I go back to look for my friend. Where is Thomas? He's not here. He's not here. Go all the way back to the base of the camp. Thomas didn't know how to pull on the reins, you guys. And I am not exaggerating. I'm not making this up. This almost grown man on top of a horse was stuck in a tree. Talk about Absalom, right? <laughs> the horse is on the ground and Thomas is all in the branches and all I hear is, Jeff! <laughs> so I look at him and go, nope. <laughs> Chubb! <laughs> and Chubb came and helped him out. But that's, that's, Tom had to learn the power of the bit. In the same way James says, look at ships, And I've got a canoeing story with me and Thomas, too. It's also funny, but I'll save it. Please don't think I know a lot about boats or horses today. But I know enough about boats to know James is right. That rudder is relatively small. And it's what guides the ship. In the same way, our hearts guide our mouths. Jesus said, the good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, Brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks the abundance of his heart. Jeremiah says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? So, what influences our mouth? Our heart. We have to ask then, What does our mouth influence? What does our tongue influence? And for what purpose? It's not just a mouth or a tongue issue, it's a heart issue. And therefore I say our hearts, or our words will take us where our hearts truly want to go. Second, our words inflame. If you will look at verse 5 and verse 6. So also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest fire is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of unrighteousness, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our existence, and is set on fire by hell. Like the rudder, like the bit, the tongue is a small part of the body, yet. The word James uses for very small for rudder is almost insignificant. It's tiny. But that's not the word he uses for tongue. He uses the Greek word micron, which means below average or small. It does not mean insignificant because as James is going to tell us, it's quite, it's quite significant. The tongue has the, the ability to do great and terrible things. And that's why he says, and yet, and yet it boasts of great things. You understand, pride has a big reason we misuse our mouths. Some passages in the New Testament seem to encourage boasting. There are good things we can boast about. First Corinthians one verse 30 it says by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written let him who boasts boast in the lord boast in the lord and the context of that simply put is that god took something small something insignificant something the world would have seen as worthless and sanctified it justified it made it holy a thing as you and me if you're in christ that he took something so humble like us And did a great work inside them. But if we're constantly boasting about what we have done, we cannot focus on the good that Christ has done for us and in us. You understand, our boasting, our pride, lessens the gospel, it lessens the cross and all it stands for, it lessens the atonement for our sin. We lessen it all with our spiteful, prideful words. Later, James is going to call out some prideful boasting, specifically in chapter 4, verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. The tongue may be a small thing, but it talks a big game. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. James is about to take us on an escalator of analogy. The tongue may be small. But the damage, the problems, the pain that it can bring, the mentality that it incites and inflames in others, it causes so many problems. We often don't even realize what our tongue has done until it's too late. The tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness, he writes. Now the tongue being a fire should really get our attention, Because the early church, when they were reading this for the first time, you have to remember, this is a society that depended on fire quite a bit to cook, to keep their houses warm. And if there was a draft coming in through the window, well, a fire could spread pretty rapidly through their house. Not just their house, but then the whole neighborhood. And then not the neighborhood, but the whole city. And before you know it, Rome is burning, right? Just like the tongue, the ancients did not have an effective way to put out that fire. Today your house catches on fire, a smoke alarm goes off, you grab the fire extinguisher you've got in your kitchen, or at worst case, the the fire department shows up, hoses everything down, and hey, maybe at least you've got a chance to salvage what's left. It's not the case with the tongue. The damage that is done with gossip, when we nitpick and gripe, when we nag at our spouse, the little comments and insults, they quickly become a forest fire, and there is no means of stopping it once it's ran its co- until it has ran its course. That's why the proverb says, a vile man digs up evil and the words on his lips are like a scorching fire. I've said this before, but I'll say it one more time as well. There may come a time, or maybe there has come a time, when you disagree with what I preach on a Sunday or teach on Wednesday nights as your pastor. Please come and talk to me about that Please have that conversation because I would rather have an uncomfortable conversation than have someone go around starting fires, hurting people, and putting words in the pastor's mouth. And if that is you, if you're doing that, if you're purposely starting fires, I will say this, and I want to be very clear that it's probably time you find another church. Find another place to worship. Because if you can't understand and submit to the authority God's placed here, then maybe it's time to look elsewhere. And I say that because arson gets charged the same way as murder. It is killing the church. A friend of mine asked me, I wasn't going to share this, but a friend of mine asked me recently this, this past week, Jeff, if you didn't have to deal with this or that, How much time could you effectively put towards preaching and teaching the word? And I said, yeah, it would save me probably a day's work without having to put out fires. Church, it kills the body. That's why James says it's the very world of unrighteousness. It's the Greek word adikias. It's the Greek word. It means injustice. We often want our own justice. Even in the church, we insist to get what we want because we believe what we want is Right? under our own authority. And when I say all of this, please understand, I acknowledge I am not the final authority of this church. The board is definitely not the final authority of this church. The janitor is not the final authority of the church. Calvin is not. It's Christ, because it's his church. And for those of us in leadership, we have to take his rules and his guidelines And his word and govern accordingly and run things accordingly. Now when I say that, yes, there are things. The buck stops at the pastor's desk, period. And there were times in the past, it's my understanding, and I do not say this as a critique of previous pastors, but there were times that was not so. But you've had a pastor now for almost five years And we've got to stop with the fires. See what James says next. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. I said this when we were in chapter 1. If anyone thinks himself to be religious while not bridling his tongue but deceiving his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. You see, you may think you're doing the right thing. You may think you're doing well. But when we are saying things that are divisive or abusive All you're doing is invalidating your own testimony. Not only that, it defiles the whole body. And it easily begins to infect the church body. That's what James means when he writes that it sets on fire the course of our existence. It's the whole, when he says our, it's the whole community of believers. And where does that fire come from? Well, it's set on fire by hell itself. The bottom line is simply this, those who cause division in the church with their words, those who undermine and cut down, those who say you don't have to listen to the pastor, we don't have to respect the board, things like that, they are doing Satan's job. And he doesn't need your help. Our words inflame, but that does not mean the fire is good or useful. Verses 7 and 8, like I said, we're going to begin to pick up speed now. For every kind of beast and bird or reptiles of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. James is just simply saying here that it is possible to tame almost every animal, but your tongue is impossible to actually tame. Even the honey badger is tameable, according to James. How many of you know what a honey badger is? Yeah, some of you, that's my favorite animal. No, I don't want one. All right, that is my favorite animal. I love the honey badger. Someone's going to put one in my office now. <laughs> honey badgers are mean. Honey badgers do what they want, when they want, how they want. Nobody tells a honey badger what to do, but somebody's going to tame one. Honey badgers are so tough, they eat scorpions. They are immune to many poisons. You know how tough you got to be to eat a scorpion? Raw. <laughs> they don't cook them. <laughs> and James says even still, it is more possible to tame a honey badger than the human tongue. And while the honey badger is immune to venom, the human tongue spews it. And often it's restless, it won't stop, it can't stop spreading the venom. The poison James is referring to is that of a snake. We read in Psalm 140 verse 3 that they sharpen their tongues as a serpent, poison of an asp is under their lips. Psalm 58 verse 4, they have venom like the venom of a serpent. James is telling the church the uncontrolled, inflaming tongue is one that's set on fire by hell itself. He's saying that if we do not gauge what we say, we are doing the devil's work for him. The flames set by our words take a long time to put out. Oh, I just said this. Oh, but I apologized after. And yet the hurt lingers. I'm just joking. And even if I was, the hurt's still there. I'm guilty of that. I'd be a hypocrite if I stood up here and said I'm perfect, that I've not done that. Many times, for the record, I was joking, and I am sorry, and I didn't mean it that way but if we're going to move forward as a church we have to be cautious of the fires our mouths start because whether we like it or not our words will take us where our hearts truly want to go verses 9 and 10 with it we bless our lord and father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of god from the same mouth come blessing and cursing my brothers these things ought not to be so with it we bless god and we curse men First John tells us that does not even make sense that we do this. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see, the tongue exposes our hypocrisy more than anything else we do. It's useful for virtue, but it's useful for vice as well. The Jewish readers of this time that James is writing to, they would add this phrase after speaking of God. They would say, blessed be he which is a traditional thing they would add. We see it in Psalm 68, for example. I won't read it for time's sake. But then with the same mouth that blesses God, they'll cut down their neighbor, they'll cut down their friends, they'll put down their church, their pastor, their brother or sister in the sanctuary. Oh, we'll say we love God, but we'll cut down the person made in his image. We'll say we love Jesus, and then we'll slander the person Jesus died for. And this is one that ought to hit us home and hit us hard They'll say they want a move of the Holy Spirit but then put down someone else just as filled with the Spirit's presence as we are. The word likeness, someone made in the likeness of God, that's an interesting word choice. Likeness in the Greek is homo It means it's not the same substance. We're not the same thing. But we're just something that looks like it that we are made to look like it. Christ is homo ausen. He's the same substance. He's the eternal God, the same being, one of the persons of the Trinity. There's a big difference. Homo ausen, that's us. We're just an image. We're not gods. We're the cave painting. We're the Instagram photo. We're not the real thing. And of course, when James says this, he's referring to Genesis. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. These things ought not to be so. Think of it like this. The same mouth that comes to church and sings worship, and we had beautiful worship this morning, comes to church and sings those songs, will turn around and shout at a coworker on Monday We'll put down our spouse on Tuesday. We'll cuss someone out on Wednesday. We'll grumble about politics on Thursday. We'll whine about the size of our paycheck on Friday and we'll speak dreadful things about our family on Saturday. Oh, but on Sunday we want to come and we want to worship, right? James says it ought not be that way. That is the pinnacle of hypocrisy. In the kindest, sweetest, gentlest way here, James is telling the church Knock it off. Stop using your mouth, your tongue for hurting one another. Now there is a time for rebuke. Absolutely. There's a time for calling things out. pointed out last week, James calls out antinomianism, which is a, a heresy. It was a problem within the church. Paul tells Timothy and all pastors, reprove, rebuke, exhort. And we do that with our tongue, with our speech. But he also says to do it with great patience and teaching. Earlier, Paul had told Timothy, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may give them repentance leading to the full knowledge of the truth. Not supposed to do that in pride. We're not supposed to do that in anger. We're not to do this because the preacher wants to be right but that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. When I say we are doing the devil's work for him, there are those who undermine, who gossip, who slander, and they don't see it, but they are under the devil's thrall. As James has implied again and again, they're doing the devil's will. So we have to pause and we have to ask, What are we inspiring with our words? What are we building up? Are we blessing or are we cursing? Are we helping or are we hindering? And finally, verses 11 and 12, and I'll begin to wrap things up. Does a fountain pour forth from the same opening fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? I'll say this quick, like I said, but these two verses, what really James is saying is what fruit is your mouth producing? That's what he's really getting at. If you're producing bitterness, what's that say you're filled with? Bitterness. If you're producing refreshment, well, you're a refreshing, you've been refreshed inside, right? And you're refreshing others. If you're producing rotten fruit, that's not because you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's because you're filled with rottenness. If you're producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, that's great, but is your mouth under self-control? Church, I struggle with this every day. I am not perfect in this. I admit that freely. But today, we should let the word of God challenge us and ask, what am I inspiring? What am I saying? Because if the mouth truly speaks what's in the heart, where are our words taking us? That's where our heart really is. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back. This morning, I would ask you this. Where do you want this church to go? As a part of Faith Assembly of God, where do you want the church to go? And and pray about how we get there. I think we're going to answer those questions in the coming weeks, in the coming months. But if we're constantly complaining, we're constantly putting down, then chances are we're going to set that pace with our speech. We're going to put down and never advance. Many times I've heard this happen, and in, in, well, it's happened in our church, it's happened in other churches. When the church starts to succeed, everybody wants to go back to what killed us. Psalm 85 says, do not let us return to our foolishness, but our words will take us there if that's what we want. Oh, if only we had life like it was when Pastor Kevin was here, and I love Kevin's on, I do. We, we've talked a lot. Good friend. But we can't go back to that. We're moving forward. If we're positive, if we're excited and and share what's going on in our lives, in our church, and building up one another, guess what? We're going to continue to build on that. But if all we do is fight, pick, nag, we're going to be a divided church, and that's where we'll stay until we die. We have to address that with our words when we hear it, when we hear these things happening. But inside ourselves, we also have to address it within our own hearts. If you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I do. I have a heart problem, Pastor. My speech shows it. I would challenge you to take time to find a place to pray this morning. And if you repent, truly repent. Don't just say you're repenting. Do it. Follow through. Let the Holy Spirit convict and lead you. Will you stand this morning as we close in worship?